Hi and welcome everybody. This is IT and yes we know it sounds like information technology for good reason as we like to highlight tech innovations, education and current topics and vision every week. Uh, make sure you have a beverage in hand and today our topic is curing blindness and I know it certainly sounds something that came out of a movie but, but it's all true and it's all real data and we have some great speakers we're gonna present today. My name is Gagan Kaldra, and I'm joined by my co-founder, Gizrin Leviste, and our talented crew, Drs. Mike Zane, Ricky Enzor, and Grayson Armstrong, who, who are going to join us soon. <laughs> so our first guest is someone super special and a highly distinguished ophthalmologist and a scientist, Dr. Jose Elaine Sahel. He holds the chair of Department of Ophthalmology at University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, Eye Center. And he is also the director of UPMC Eye Center and Eye and Ear Foundation Chair of Ophthalmology. He is a pioneer in the field of artificial retina and vision restorative therapies such as optogenetics. His trailblazing work in the field, especially with retinal and subretinal implants, have had a tremendous impact in patients' lives, you know, restoring usable vision to them. And recently, his work with optogenetics got published in Nature Medicine, which is one of the highest impact factor journals in all of medicine. Dr. Sayle, we are honored and privileged to have you here with us today. Thank you again for inviting me. So very pleased to, to be with you today. Uh, so, so do you want me to talk about the most recent work or in general about the work we have been doing on the vision restoration? So just let me know what you would like me to, to start talking about. Totally, totally, Dr. Sahel. We have some great themes planned for you, and we'll, we'll just kick things off right, right after we introduce our next speaker as well. Catherine, I pass it back to you. All righty. Our next guest is a dear colleague and visionary in advancing applications of technology and ophthalmic technologies. As the Medical Director of Technology Innovation at Baskin Palmer Eye Institute, Dr. Rania Habash is a rare breed of academic entrepreneur from starting her own healthcare software company to working alongside global tech giants like Microsoft. She's played a pivotal role in ushering in new telemedicine approaches at Bascom Palmer during the pandemic and is a leader in the field of telehealth for ophthalmology. Further, her recent work with the iBrain Connectome and brain-computer interface is something that we definitely want to talk about today. So welcome, Dr. Habash. Wow, Kat, <laughs> that was great. I'm going to have to steal that and use that as my bio from now on. <laughs> thanks, thanks, guys, for having me. And uh, I want to commend you on all the great work you've done. You know, that, that picture that you have up with asking, first of all, what is Clubhouse? And then going, you know, fast forward um, just a few weeks or months. It's pretty dramatic and amazing. All right. Gizrin, would you like to kick things off with the first, first question for our speakers? Yeah, we'll let Dr. Sahel start with this one. In about five minutes or less, can you share a little bit about yourself, your journey, and your experience with innovations in the fight against blindness. What was the inspiration behind your research, Dr. Sahel? Yeah, well, from uh, my practice, uh, I trained as a pharmacologist and then a retina specialist uh, in France and uh, at Harvard as a fellowship. And uh, I was taught to do retinal surgery and was very pleased with that. But uh, when I was uh, a resident and a fellow, we didn't have any treatment for AMD, just the laser, and uh, was really not helping a lot of patients, actually very few, and uh, there was absolutely nothing for retinal degenerations uh, or the hereditary diseases. So I just thought that this was 
kind of frustrating to have to tell patients that uh, there's nothing to do. And uh, I decided that I would take some sort of uh, turn and uh, start to work on research in neuroscience to try to understand better why photoreceptors are degenerating. And uh, so this led me to create my own lab and to start to develop approaches that we are talking about uh, many, many years, like 30 years of, uh, of research. So uh, some of this is now starting to get into clinic and uh, some of it may be approved very soon, but uh, it started really from uh, issues with not being able to cope with patients' needs uh, many, many years ago. That is very exciting and super inspiring. And definitely that the fact that, you know, not giving up and then having nothing to say to the patient is really a big inspiration and a real true one that I think everyone here can resonate with. Thank you for sharing that, Dr. Sahil. Um, I, I guess I, I want to also turn this question to Dr. Habash and hear about her side of the story as to how she thought, you know, fighting blindness might be something that she wanted to do. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with Dr. Sahil. I mean, one, one of the things you learn when you're a physician is, you know, it's really hard to tell a patient there's nothing you can do. So I never tell them there's nothing we can do. You know, it's always something like there's nothing we need to do right now, or there are so many, you know, things coming out on the horizon. So don't lose hope. You know, you always have to keep that 30% um, of optimism going in your patients. But I completely agree. I mean, I, I think, you know, I, I don't know, I, I can't even remember how far back, but from a very early age, and from, you know, the start of my career, I, I just always felt that uh, I'm tripping over this part, but I, I just don't even know how to, how to qualify it. But I mean, you just have this feeling that you want to help. I mean, we all do because we go into medicine, but, you know, you just have this greater pull towards, you know, helping and it just kind of snowballs over time. You know, maybe uh, something that gave me my start was I grew up in rural West Virginia. My parents came over from, they're, they're Palestinian, and we came over. My dad is the town doctor in this very rural area in West Virginia, and these patients don't have anything. I mean, they they literally have like no way to get to the doctor when they're sick. And one of my first forays into telemedicine was giving them access to care and access to my dad. So he could triage them at the very least and tell them that they needed to get a ride to the emergency room or get a food stamp or get travel vouchers, et cetera. So it was sort of like, you know, democratizing medicine. And that was far back before it became, you know, anywhere near mainstream. But that's what actually prompted me to start my company. And then my company got acquired. And I was hired on as a chief medical officer. And we very quickly started putting the software in. I mean, now it's in about 1,500 different health systems. So it's a very integral part of the critical communication system. In fact, you know, everybody here has used it. If you get alerts on your phone that they're like an amber alert or hurricane alert or whatever, that's our company. You know, that's, the that's Everbridge, the critical communications company. So I've been working with them this whole time. And being in 15 different, 1,500 different health systems, you learn the best practices, you learn what, what works, what doesn't. It's a global company, so have a really good, you know, finger on the pulse of what's going on in the rest of the world and what kind of needs we need to fill. And I think that just, you know, like I was saying before, I'm rambling now, sorry, but it, it just kind of snowballed over time. And then that urge deep inside your stomach to like, you know, just do more and do more. It just keeps building. And that's what, you know, brought us to this point. You know, one of the biggest research projects that I think I've ever completed is the Microsoft project. <clears throat> and this is where, you know, we thought um, AI was going to be really handy in um, helping patients and especially underserved areas. I mean, everybody now talks about underserved areas, but 
it's no different from how it was five years ago. You know, there are still underserved areas everywhere and patients in great need of basic screening. I mean, I don't even need to quote all of these statistics to you guys, but 50% of the world is going blind. They don't even know it because they've never been screened and the diseases are silent. We know that. And so it's very important to put something accessible in their hands. And when you can create an algorithm, which is what we did with Microsoft, we took images from Bascom Palmer and um, like 86,000 images. We uh, created an algorithm. I really felt strongly I wanted to do one algorithm that identified it you know, different diseases. And so we did diabetic retinopathy, of course, like everyone in the world, but we also did macular degeneration, glaucoma, and ocular melanoma too, and staged all of them. So mild, moderate, severe, with and without macular edema, et cetera. And that's a game changer in the industry. I mean, my, my thought now is that this should be in every single CVS and Walgreens and eventually on everybody's smartphone so that they can get an autonomous read of what's going on inside their eyes. Anyway, so fast forward a little bit further, that was a couple of years ago, and um, now my main interest is brain-machine interfacing, because like Dr. Sahil, I, you know, I think that the, the most important research we can do probably comes from the brain, and the brain controls everything, and not to diminish the eyes, but the eyes are just sensory organs, right? They put input into the brain. It's just an input-output system, and the brain is your, you know, transmitter, your, your I'm sorry, your receiver, so... If you can just input the signals better into the brain, you can cure blindness. I'll stop there and you guys can uh, take it. <laughs> definitely. And I think I think those are some great points. And definitely towards the end there, that's also something that we have broken down the talk today into two parts. The one part is where we are sort of targeting therapy is just towards the eye. And the second part is where we target it towards the brain. With that, I would love to jump straight to, you know, the topic uh, of the hour, really, that is optogenetics. So, Dr. Sahil, uh, I would love to give you the opportunity to introduce that topic, you know, what it is and what was the eureka moment with this work in terms of how you felt it was useful when you realized its true potential. Then further after that, you found what the current limitations are and where we need to go with it. Sure. So, well, uh, it all started many, many years ago. My, my mainstream research was on, is still on trying to protect the remaining vision in patients with uh, retinitis pigmentosa and uh, age-related macular degeneration. So I spent uh, 25 years to identify signals that are supporting uh, central retina photoreceptor, central code, and still, and this is going to enter the clinic uh, next year, hopefully. Mm-hmm. But uh, in parallel, uh, there was all this group of patients, uh, so many patients that lost already most of their vision, and how to be able to restore some of it. So initially, I remember it was probably in 96, I was attending a, a lecture about artificial retina, and the, the guy giving the lecture was making it like it's going to restore normal vision, and he was extremely a very good uh, engineer and scientist. But I thought this is ridiculous, this is never going to work. But I came out of a room and and I thought uh, maybe what is ridiculous is not to try. So instead of just thinking this nonsense, 
why not try? And I had just started my own small lab when I was back from Boston, and uh, I thought I started to figure out what would be the right questions to ask. And uh, we started a very small project uh, in a very small lab, and eventually this led us to develop an initial version of an artificial retina. Then we started to collaborate with uh, Marco Mayon, who was developing uh, the Argus, and uh, I was the first in Europe to to test it. We were part of the uh, trial that to be approval. And then we started to work on improving actually the technology because, as you know, it's providing some vision, but not very accurate, and but still quite a breakthrough already. And then I started to collaborate with uh, Daniel Palanca at Stanford. We worked together on this wireless chip to try to reactivate uh, the central retina in atrioretinal macular degeneration. So this was in the around 2000, early 2000 and mid 2000. And the initial research and the clinical trial we did at the end of the year, around 2008-2009. So in uh, early 2000, late 90s actually, and early 2000, scientists working uh, in very basic science, working on algae actually, discovered that the reason why algae are withdrawing from light or getting directed towards light and how they control the activity of the cilium was due to the existence of uh, very specific proteins that exist at the membrane of algae that are able to capture the light. And when they capture the light, this is coupled with a transmembrane uh, channel or pump, and this is eliciting an electrical response. So in just one protein, you have the absorption of light and the activation of the membrane through a potential. And uh, initially, the scientists, the main scientists who developed that with uh, Ernst Bamberg at the Max Planck Institute in Frankfurt, he, he thought this might be very useful to control the activity of neurons and to be able to understand the circuits and connectivity. And this became a very powerful tool. I think it was called the uh, name and discovery of the year. I forget in what, in what year by science. And many groups across the world started to use the technology uh, to manipulate uh, neurons and to try to understand the connections. And uh, one very well-known example in the U.S. is uh, Carl Desert at Stanford, who is doing that for psychiatric disorders, not in humans, but in uh, animal models, to understand that. But uh, very early uh, in the 2006, I think 2005 to 2006, a couple of people thought that if we can activate neurons with light, this is what the retina is doing. So why not applying that to the retina? And uh, so someone started that uh, in Detroit, Dr. Pan, and he used uh, the first existing uh, of these proteins, uh, channel rhodopsin, and he, he published a very nice paper in Neuron, a very good journal, showing uh, electrical responses. This led him to propose to get into a clinical trial which and to create a company. Uh, I think this trial started probably five years ago, but uh, we never heard about any results from that. And uh, what we found, I found concerning on that is that the amount of light you need to activate these proteins is huge because these proteins have no amplification. They capture the light, they trigger electrical signal, but there is no amplification. And as you, you know all, in the retina, there is a huge amplification, a huge adaptation. The, each, uh, each activation of one rhodopsin protein is actually leading to the opening of one million channels. So it's a very powerful amplification. So how do you do that with only one protein? And um, we, I, at that time, I, I had a discussion with a good friend of mine, much younger than myself, Botan Roska, who is a very good neuroscientist, was working on the circuitry in the retina and also thought that it could be a, a good way to activate the retina. And actually, when he spoke about that first at Arvo, it was 2006 or 2007, 
everyone was laughing about it. It, uh, it was kind of ridiculous. So he was depressed. We sat together, and I told him, I really think this is a great idea, and uh, we need to do it. But we thought that there are many questions that need to be addressed. Uh, first question is what type of protein, because you cannot deliver this massive amount of light by staring at the sun in the desert. No way this can be working in patients. We need to define what cells should be targeted in the retina to be activated. And this is the, the biotherapy part of that. So how to do that? Then you need to find how to deliver these proteins using gene therapy. And uh, so we started to work on that. And together with Boton, we thought initially about, uh, yeah, not initially about activating the polar cells in the retina. There is a nice paper about that, but there is no good uh, way to get that into human retina. So this was put on hold for a while. There is a group now in Switzerland that is trying to do that. Then we started to think that maybe photoreceptors themselves, because they don't die right away, we start by losing the outer segment, so they are no longer responding to light, responding to light, but they still have a connectivity. So we started to work on what we call the dormant cones, and we showed, we published that in uh, Science since 2010, that we could reactivate the dormant cones in uh, several mouse models of the blindness. So we thought, okay, this is the way to go. I looked on the uh, many data, many, many patients with retinitis pigmentosa, and we found that around 20% of these patients still have dormant cones. So this leaves 80% that don't have this cell. But we started to work on that, and we faced a couple of issues about the targeting and everything, but I don't want to waste your time on that. So we decided to, instead of targeting the cells, why not go directly to the ganglion cells, the cells that are forming the optic nerve, and uh, trying to activate them uh, directly. The point being that ganglion cells, they don't degenerate heavily. They do degenerate a bit, but not heavily in the disease, and they are left, if you do CT in this patient, to still find ganglion cells that are connected. So we, we defined that, but the ganglion cell, we found the best vector to target that, and also the best promoter to do that too. And then the protein itself, we were looking for a protein that was shifted into the red or long long wavelength because this is uh, less energetic, but this requires far less light, far less energy to be activated. So we found the one that was developed in California by Roger Chen, a Nobel laureate, who published on that and was working. But then I got a very interesting email, and Boton got the same from Ed Boyden at MIT, because he was doing a very systematic uh, modification of his proteins, and he developed one that was shifted into the red that looked very promising. Actually, it shifted into the amber. So we tried that uh, in uh, many animals and uh, in primates, and we found it was working very well. Then the second question is, how do you activate that? You need a lot of light, but not too much. But we have also to remember that the retina not only is very sensitive to light, but is also able to adapt to many levels of lighting, from very dark to very bright, 12 log units of changes. So to do that, you, have, you need a system outside the eye that can compensate for the fact that you can do that with a single protein. So we develop a goggles that comprise... Uh, cameras that we developed that are bio-inspired, event-based. So these are pixel-by-pixel pixel cameras where each pixel is reacting to a change in lighting at any level of lighting. And then this was coupled with some processing, but also in the same goggles with a projector that is sending the light into the eye with the wavelength that corresponds to the amber protein. 
So we tested that in uh, animals, and it was working nicely. Actually, we published several papers on the modeling, mathematical modeling of a computational uh, approach, and uh, showing that we could predict a significant improvement of vision in blind retinas. But then the step in patients was doing all of that, but then training the patient on how to use the goggles and how to adjust them, but also how to interpret the signal. And so uh, the, we got the approval for the trial. We started uh, in 2019, uh, and we knew that it took four to six months for the protein to be optimally expressed and then to start the training. And we started the training. Initially, the patient didn't see much, just a bit of light. But after a few months, in February 2020, the first patient in the study told us that he was seeing the stripes uh, at the crosswalks. And then we brought him to, uh, we, we developed uh, an artificial street, an artistic environment to assess vision. And he was able to see objects, to grasp objects, to recognize them at different levels of contract. Not perfectly, but he was able to do that. So this was uh, very important for us because this was the, the war moment, the 12 years of work leading to this patient telling that he was seeing something which was some sort of form vision. But we, we had to do more than that. And unfortunately, just at that time, COVID hit. So none of the other patients could be trained. And even this patient couldn't come back for several months. So he was able to come back between the waves a couple of times to be trained. And uh, we wanted to check that the vision he was reporting was not something that's like a placebo effect. And so we recorded from the brain. Actually, we developed a multi-electrode recording using multi-EG. And as you, if you read the paper, you'll see that very, very clear responses were observed at the occipital level. So it's more or less a combination of uh, biotherapy with a very novel protein that is coming from algae, modified, stimulating system, which is like a brain-computer interface in some ways, although it's outside, it's non-invasive, so it's not touching neither on the retina nor on the brain, and then the rehabilitation process. And probably the rehabilitation is one of the major components. The patient is actually very, very informative. It tells us a lot of things, and this is something I had seen already happening with artificial retina, and it's again happening. So now we are back, and now that COVID is uh, receding, we are full speed to uh, continue with this patient and the other patients uh, to continue that work. Sorry, I was a bit long just trying to explain the, the technology. It was wonderful. I mean, superb, really. I mean, it was such a great summary. I think this was just like an amazing crash course for anyone who's joining today to learn about this amazing journey that you, you went with this. And really, it just tells you, you know, there needs to be a, a certain level of persistence, even when someone tells you that, you know, something might not work, but you have to keep at it and believe in yourself. And then at the end of the day, you know, that, that pays through. And, and, and I'm glad the impact that you had in the life of the patient, really, because, you know, giving them meaningful, usable vision is, is really important. And and that's so amazing that you were able to do that. This is a great story to hear. Thank you so much, Dr. Sahel. That I would love to give Mike a chance to ask the next question. Stimulating Dr. Sahel and, of course, passion fuels purpose. And with that being said, I would like to ask Dr. Bash about her Greek moment and specifically about your work with the brain-machine interface, and how is it useful, where are we, and what are the current limitations, and what are the next steps? <laughs> Perfect. I thought you'd never ask. So, you know, that was amazing uh, to hear. You're right. That was a total crash course. And I think, you know, one big takeaway there, which I loved, is uh, when you said, 
you know, at first when you saw like the Argus, for instance, you said, okay, well, that's not going to work. That's ridiculous. But you were right when you said, well, it's ridiculous to think it's not going to work because, you know, nothing is going to work on the first stab. I mean, it's called a minimally viable product for a reason, right? You just have to start somewhere and then you build on it. So I'm, I'm glad that you kept at it. Clearly, you've now shown another way of stimulating the brain. I think probably we should take just a small step back, although a lot of people here probably already know a lot of what uh, he was saying. But t- let's take a step back and let's just think about what the brain does and what the neurons do. Right. We learned in med school that, you know, the signal is propagated along the axon. Right. As long as it meets a certain threshold. And it's just an electrical signal. So really, this is this is just electricity. So it's electrical signals going into the brain or, or, you know, input going in and then output when you do something. So it's a very simple system if you actually think about it that way. And if you think about all the different ways you can manipulate electrical activity, that kind of gets you to the point where you're thinking, okay, well, I mean, that's really the eureka moment. Like, what are all the different ways that I can change, you know, the electrical signals in the brain or anywhere? I mean, just think about any electricity, right? How can you change signals? Well, it can be with magnets. It can be with light. It can be with with sound or, you know, with vibration. There's a lot of different ways that you can change the electrical pathways and signals. And that leads us to the brain because as we were talking about, you know, the eye is conductor, right? It just brings in the signals and feeds them into the brain. So the optic nerve is sort of like, I tell my patients, it's kind of like the plug that plugs in your eyeball to your brain. And so if there's something wrong with the plug, you know, you're unplugged. You can't get that signal up to the brain. So we have to find a better way to put the signal in the brain. And that's what leads us to the brain-machine interface. So a few months back, you know, I've been following, of course, Elon Musk and Brian Johnson and all their work. Um, A few years back, I'll I'll tell the story of Brian Johnson here. So Brian Johnson is the owner um, and founder of Venmo Braintree which I'm sure a lot of people here use, right? You guys use it, Venmo? (laughs) Totally. I'm sure most everybody does on here. Exactly, right. And he sold Venmo to PayPal for $800 million. Everybody uses PayPal too, right? So once again, this is um, just a whole new way of thinking about things. I mean, before this, online banking just didn't happen. We were all still standing in line at Bank of America or, you know, the ATM or whatever. That doesn't happen anymore because they thought, differently, just like Steve Jobs said, think different, right? So um, Brian Johnson sold the company, um, sold Venmo to to PayPal for $800 million. And then he said, you know what? I've got all this money now. I'm going to do something really good for humanity. And so he thought, what's the best thing I can do for humanity? Okay, well, maybe I can make brains work better. And this is a guy who's like a tech guy. He has nothing to do with medicine, but that was his thought. And, you know, I think that's a really good lesson for all of us because it's really important to listen to how business and tech people think because they think very differently from the way we think. And it's great to learn from them. So anyway, he said, I'm going to create a brain company. And so who did he talk to? Well, his buddy, Elon Musk. And he said, what do you think about this brain, you know, company thing? And Elon said, well, we should really just put it inside the brain. We should just implant a device. And Brian Johnson said, well, I don't think people are ready for that. How about you go ahead and put it in the brain and I will make a wearable device instead. (laughs) And so that's how Kernel was formed. That was the company named Kernel. And one of the first things he did was, you know, he said, he, he put it out there and said, basically, I have seven 
seven, you know, I have just a few prototypes and of this uh, kernel device. And um, I'm looking for the best proposals and I will give away these first, you know, prototypes to the best proposals and institutions that I've read. And so I um, submitted our proposal on behalf of Baskin Palmer. I wove together like four different major research projects that we were doing and submitted our proposal. We won one of the prototypes and now we're one of the you know, seven institutions that's doing brain machine work with the kernel device. Now, I'll stop there for a second, but I wanted to explain the kernel device and sort of what we're doing with it next. But I'm going to let you guys leave. No, Dr. Abash, I think that's a perfect segue into it. And that was one of our questions for you. So you may as well. <laughs> okay. Yes, that would be great. Great. I just wanted to give you some background there. So so the the device that he has, it's kind of like a functional MRI or an FNIRS system. So, you know, with, when we're testing our patients, usually we have to put them in the MRI. It takes forever. It's loud. It's expensive. It's, you know, there's very poor access to it. So sometimes, you know, basically it's a pain, right? And also it doesn't give us really accurate information because patients are laying there. They're not actually doing activities which cause their brain patterns to change. And so with this device, it's just a wearable helmet. It's almost like the X-Men helmet. He's probably going to kill me for saying that, but it kind of looks like the X-Men helmet. And patients can wear it and do certain activities that might trigger certain brainwave patterns. So what do I mean by that? I'll start with the research projects that we're doing at Bascom now. So research project number one is ocular pain. So this is like post-refractive pain. It's uh, traumatic brain injury pain, migraine pain, you know, any, any source of pain that you can think of, basically, post-herpetic um, neuralgia, you know, anything that causes these brain pathways to fire, and they're really hard to treat. You know, we have patients who you've, you've probably all heard, you know, the few cases, these patients sometimes want to jump off a bridge. I mean, they, they do actually commit suicide because the pain is so bad, and it's impossible to fix sometimes. So... Our thought was, well, let's just do a brain study where we're stimulating pain in that patient. And to stimulate pain, we would shine a light on the eye or we would touch the eye with a Q-tip. You know, think of it that way. Or sometimes blow air into the eye. We can't do that stuff in an MRI. But you can when a patient is wearing this mobile helmet or the wearable device. And so we are, we're um, prompting the pain pathway to be stimulated. And the goal then is to trace it and, and follow it, look at the brain pattern, and then stop the, the pain. So you can do that. That's the whole, that's the next part. That's probably part two of this talk. We should probably set that up right now. But that is doing the input portion of the brain machine interface. So project number two is glaucoma, another really good one that, uh, you know, glaucoma, the signal doesn't get to the, the occipital cortex the way it should because there's nerve damage, right? So it's really super easy to tell how much signal intensity you're getting in the occipital cortex if you just look with a functional MRI or an FNIR system. And that's actually a really objective way to tell, you know, what what activity is going on, right? So, you know, forget about staging now glaucoma, mild, moderate, severe, or whatever, just not even knowing for sure. Now you actually have a real objective way to, to gauge that signal intensity or the signal attenuation. And actually going to optogenetics, that's also a really good way to gauge the results of those trials. I'll stop there so Dr. Sahel can take it. <laughs> Dr. Sahel, would you have some comments uh, regarding functional MRI? No, I think it's uh, very, very interesting uh, and 
probably does solve some of the issues, but uh, you don't have to put the patient inside of a very complicated magnet. And also, this doesn't enable you to use uh, stimulating goggles or different devices. So it has a lot of value, and the resolution is pretty good. Uh, I don't know what level of resolution you get with that, but I guess it's, going, it's much better. So as you know, we as I described, we use multi-electrode EG, which provides also quite important information, but probably not the same level of resolution. The, the important uh, message, I think, was stated by Rania is that we see with our brain, so this is where everything happens. Uh, the eyes are really feeding the brain. As we know, it's not a passing thing. There's a lot of computing that occurs in the eyes, and uh, this is a multi-stage processing that occurs and is leading to brain activation. But being able to get directly to the brain is certainly very meaningful for patients that lost the optic nerve, that lost the eyes, so there's a huge potential for that. Clearly, we don't know that the actual resolution that can be reached, but these technologies keep evolving all the time. So it's likely to be very useful. In uh, in my, as you know, uh, maybe you didn't mention that, so I founded the Vision Institute in Paris that comprises 300 scientists, and many are working on the brain directly, uh, especially using the optogenetics and the Doppler and the holographic, uh, digital holography to measure the activity of cortical neurons. And uh, this is a very, very multi-layer process. It's really, a, as compared to a computer, it's a, it's a real-time, event-based, uh, continuous process that is occurring. And being able to report from it is uh, going to teach. And the, probably something that we would need to realize is that Patients in this type of uh, studies are going to be uh, experimentalists also. They are going to tell us a lot about what they feel and how to program all these systems uh, in the future. So I'll stop here. I think that is amazing. Some great thoughts there. And I think definitely, Dr. Habash, would you want to add more there? Yeah, well, I was going to say, you know, the, the resolution is even higher um, than a regular MRI system. But, you know, b beyond that, I think the important thing is the functionality. So, you know, you get very different sort of behaviors and readings when a patient is just laying flat and unstimulated in an MRI than you do with them walking around, which leads us to the last of the research projects, which is the, the dementia and neurodegenerative disease category. So this is the third prong of what we're doing. And, you know, you can look at any sort of disease that affects the eye-brain connectome. And, I mean, just imagine how much you can gauge when you have a Parkinson's patient or an Alzheimer's patient who's wearing a device, you know, trying to navigate a room or, or trying to, you know, re recall something. You know, you really find out a lot about what's going on in the brain by doing that. So, you know, in terms of the dementia projects, you know, we're actually coupling the um, retinal OCTs and retinal biomarkers along with what we're finding in the kernel device to make it, you know, sort of like a cumulative set of data, which I think is is just invaluable in, in the research world. It certainly is. I actually had a question myself. This is for either of you. You know, when Neuralink was founded in 2016, they wanted to create devices to treat serious brain diseases in the short term with the eventual goal of human enhancement, which is called like transhumanism. So I think back in the days of like Asimov, he wrote about these sci-fi topics and these concepts used to be just science fiction. Do you see in the next five, 10 years, I mean, now we have retinal implants as well. Do you see more of these applications happening in ophthalmology? becoming mainstream? 
And just to add to that, uh, could you also tie that to the blindness question that we have today for the topic? So maybe I'll start. Um, so when I started to work on artificial retina, we were starting to report on uh, some results and like others. Uh, a lot of people were talking to us about augmented uh, vision and uh, transhumanism. Uh, is this going to bring us into a new era of, uh, of human beings being uh, with enhanced functionalities? And I may sound like an old guy, which I am in some ways, but for me, the goal is not to augment humans, is to just bring them to autonomy and be able to cope with uh, devastating conditions like uh, blindness or we heard about dementia or very severe pain, uh, but not trying to get beyond what being a human is currently. Because implicitly, it may tell us that being a human being with normal vision and normal functioning is not enough. Uh, which probably tells us that we don't know what it is, uh, because when you lose it, you realize how important it is. So the goal as a physician is just to try to help people, and all these technologies and all the risk that we are taking, that patients are taking, are just meant to help people to cope with uh, severe disease. But I've always made it very clear that I would never do anything that is bordering to transhumanism or enhanced uh, human beings, because I, I think this is no longer medicine, this is something else. Oh, I get to disagree here. <laughs> so I was waiting for you to ask this, actually, because, I mean, what is LASIK? That's an enhancement, right? And we're, we're constantly augmenting ourselves. We, you know, patients have pacemakers that they're walking around with or cochlear implants, you know, neural sacral stimulators, you know, spinal cord stimulators. They've had deep brain stimulation for years now, which works very well. I mean, there's already tons of augmentation. Let's not even get into the cosmetic realm of things, right? But, you know, just think about something like LASIK. That is an enhancement, you know, and, and many people would have argued before that, you know, that wasn't fair, that some people see better than others, whatever, but this is just the way the world works. And I, I am all for enhancement, you know, because if you can help a patient who's paralyzed or blind or, you know, has any sort of an issue like that be enhanced and, and feel better about their environment and their surroundings, then why not? Well, I mean, uh, I think we agree and disagree in part. And, 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 <laughs> I just wanted to do I just wanted enhancing to someone, fun. <laughs> Enhancing someone with an impairment for me is medicine. Uh, augmenting someone with normal vision is uh, something different. So I don't want to argue about LASIK. It's not my field. I'm doing retina. But, I mean, we are talking about cochlear implants or Parkinson's disease. These are conditions that what we are doing is we are taking risk to help someone to cope with a devastating impairment and helping them to live with that. So this is not enhancement. This is medicine. This is just palliation of uh, impairment. Getting into enhanced thinking, enhanced vision, enhanced memory is something different. It's an ethical question which uh, we may enter into we probably don't agree on that but i wouldn't i wouldn't mix i wouldn't mix uh, helping the parkinson patient to be able to function and uh, helping someone with normal vision to see even better it's a totally different situation for me and i think yeah i, I think, was just teasing i was honestly just teasing you yeah i'm sorry i was just gonna say it's yeah. beautiful so, that you know there is agreement and disagreement at the same time and that's just how a healthy <laughs> conversation should be i think that's that's uh, amazing Thing. And I, I think we are at a point where, oh, and I, I see that Dr. Armstrong just joined us as well. So he is one of our team members. I don't know if he's available to introduce himself briefly, but then we also have Dr. Eric Rosenberg on stage. So I would let Mike take that from there.
Hey everyone. So, Dr. Rosenberg, welcome. And would you like to ask a question to our guest panelists? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm I'm president of the Rainio Fan Club. Uh, Dr. Habash's work has been unbelievable in the field, and you know, actually, both both presenters today. I guess my question is, for Raina, you know. With the kernel, it's actually very interesting. You're able to, you know, study it in, in, in real time. You're obviously outside the MRI machine and everything else like that. I, I wonder if modulation is sometimes more in an important role than destination. So by that, I mean, you know, we can highlight areas that get activated and sometimes reactivate those, obviously, with the spinal uh, stimulators and everything else like that. But what happens if the modulatory pathways and, you know, mechanisms to help, you know, get the signals are sometimes equally important to the system as a whole. So, you know, as we've watched computers developed over the years, we have semiconductors, you know, we have silicon chips. They all started as large transistors. And, you know, by being able to create a 3D architecture and, and sometimes the movement itself is imperative to the functioning of the system. Do you think that's a, a direction that we're heading as well? Yeah. And now I'm uh, your biggest fan too. <laughs> I didn't realize you had that kind of knowledge. That's great. Yeah. So so this is actually a really good way to tie in the retinal implants and Dr. Sahel can weigh in as well. So the reason it didn't work very well is because it was hard to put a lot of electrodes on a tiny retina. And so you were very limited and, and you know the vision was very pixelated as a result. There were other renditions of the Argus, like the Alpha IMS, for instance, and it, and it allowed um, more electrodes, I think it was like 1,500 or something, instead of the the smaller amount that was on the Argus. And so patients did get better vision. You know, basically, it's proportional to the number of electrodes that you can put in and the, the plasticity of them. So going into the brain actually is the next frontier for the Argus device. Now they've started to implant inside the brain directly. And I think they're getting more luck with that. But still, it's a, you know, it's a large device and, you know, it's, well, I mean, I guess it's kind of like in the middle between the kernel device, which is just wearable, you take it on and off, and the neural link, which is completely, you know, implanted. But the point is that, you know, it, it does, basically all those parameters do matter. And that's why um, going closer to the brain and having a larger space where the electrodes can sit is, is very important. I would also love to hear Dr. Sahil's thoughts on that. I agree with the number of pixels. I mean, the Argus was only uh, 60 pixels. Uh, the uh, one we are using with uh, the wireless is uh, around 400, 384 pixels. So uh, this is uh, certainly not the density that you have with normal photoreceptors. Uh, this is where optogenetics, where you can activate uh, thousands and more than that uh, neurons, is probably going to provide a higher resolution. We have not yet demonstrated that, but it's likely to do so. But what we have to remember is also that it's not just the resolution, it's also the processing of information. A very nice part of the brain, and the brain itself, if you look, for example, at the Orion device, which is uh, applying the Argus device to the brain, it's not, not more electrodes, actually it's even less in terms of activity. There was a very interesting paper that came out uh, a year ago uh, in Cell, where they compensated for that by using a sequence of stimulation. The way we read, we are scanning an image. So they were scanning the projection on the brain to make it uh, meaningful. And they were able to, the patients, uh, two patients, I think they were able to really have not very, not very good vision, but at least uh, significant responses. In parallel, there is a group in uh, Amsterdam 
that uh, used uh, the many UTRAs to implant more than 1,000 electrodes in primates, but there is no clinical study that uh, I know is going to come out very soon. And these primates were able to recognize letters with a lot of accuracy. So this tells that if you increase the resolution, if you provide proper processing of the images, there's this ability to, to get meaningful signals on the retina or in the brain. And uh, well, this is where clearly the brain-computer interface, brain-machine interface is so important because it's really a dialogue between subjectivity and perception and uh, stimulation that is requiring a lot of computational neuroscience. Thank, thank you both for the eloquent answers, and I'm very excited to you know, continue following your work, and uh, it's, it's exciting to be in this field at this time because of uh, people like you. Thank you. Thank you for your question, Dr. Rosenberg. In continuation of what was just asked, I had a follow-up question of sorts, more of just a curiosity. So with the subretinal implants as well, I mean, we talked about the Argus, but, but the Pixium implants, uh, how are they uh, different from the ones that we just talked about today? So the difference with the Pixium, which is called the Prima, is that these are a series of photodiodes each uh, electrode is independent, so each, each is functioning like an independent device, and the, it's using the light for stimulation, but it's also using light to amplify the signal. And this is positioned under the retina at the location of photoreceptors. So in some ways, you can believe that you are benefiting from the processing of images in the inner retina using that. Also, it's implanted in the macula, and the trial was uh, is targeting uh, patients with age-related macular degeneration. So, so we published last year in uh, ophthalmology the first five patients that were implanted in my department in in Paris, and now we implanted a couple of patients in in Pittsburgh. I think that some patients might be implanted in at Bascom Palmer in the in the near future too, yeah, as part of this trial. And there is a multi-centre. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We 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 pick Bascom Palmer is a good place to do it. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> And uh, there is also a multi-center trial that is uh, just starting in Europe. So a couple of patients have been implanted because uh, we are now seeking registration uh, first in Europe and then in the U.S. after the, the project has moved forward. So it's more or less uh, replacing photoreceptors with a panel of electrodes, but clearly uh, not as many as normal photoreceptors. But already the system has uh, almost 400 electrodes, and potentially you can implant several of them because these are tiles. And they are wireless, so there is no all the issues with the wires that you may have with other systems. So it's a, it's it's very promising. Thank you so much for sharing that. We have just one or two questions. I would love to give the mic to Mike so he can ask the remaining question. Thanks, Karin. And this is something that's uh, near and dear to me and um, the fellow co-hosts with me and with the majority of our audience being uh, medical students, trainees, all in the beginning of their careers. I was wondering if I could shift the focus to asking you about the training and learning curve, specifically with the innovations that you've had in your career, if whether you have a curriculum in mind for teaching the next generation of surgeons with the skills that are needed to cure blindness. And if we can close on that remark, that would be fantastic. Thank you. Having Ranyak would probably start. <laughs> okay. Well, I was still thinking, all right, a different curriculum. My answer to, to that would be, it's important for the next generation of, of physicians to just, you know, going back to this think different quote, you know, I think that's the main thing, you know, medicine is changing. 
and we have to adapt with it, right? We have to sort of adapt what we've used to, what, what we've been doing before. I mean, I was demoing um, today an online uh, perimetry test, a visual field test. It was online. And, um, you know, some people were asking me that, you know, oh, can it do a blue and yellow and, you know, can it do a swap and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I was telling them, you know, you have to think differently. You're not, it's not going to be the same as your in-house visual field test, but this is a screening test, you know, for the general population that's easy and I mean, free and doesn't require anything. So, you know, basically my advice would be, this is a new age of medicine. You have to change your thinking. You can't get stuck in our old ways of being taught and, and thinking. And that's, you know, if I could impart one thing to my, my trainees moving forward, that's, that's what I want them to, to think about. And I also want them to think also about, you know, how to always be innovating and growing and finding better ways to do things. So, well, so I agree with everything that when you say that I may, we want to add that it's, we are entering a very unusual time because on one side, well, the number of technologies that are emerging and the ability to, to get to very accurate uh, analysis of what happened in the visual pathway, in the NBI and, and beyond is unprecedented and it's continued to, to evolve permanently. And so this is, this is great. But at the same time, this could increase the reductionist approach in medicine that we would get into details versus the global questions that patients are asking us. And vision is really a global sensation and something that is very, very meaningful for patients. So we should never forget that uh, even if we get very uh, a lot of accuracy, accuracy is not the truth. The truth is more global than just accuracy. So we need to combine the two. And the other message I would like to give is that, at least for myself, the most important project I've been working on, I've taken uh, the shortest has taken 10 years, and the longest is already 25 years. And so it's very on path. And uh, when there is one day of success, it's following many days of failures. And uh, you learn from this and you, you go to the next step. And uh, our patients deserve this uh, type of continuous effort because they're asking us to not to give up, which means that we may not succeed, but we don't have a right to say that we can't try. I love those words, Dr. Habash and Dr. Sahil. Those are some really golden words. I'm writing them down here for, you know, to share later with the group and with our uh, social media handles also just to sort of disseminate the message as as much as we can with this and i really appreciate you guys making the time today nice to be with you thank you so much uh and and i hope you uh would come back to our club for more uh stimulating discussions like these like great guests uh, like Rania, wonderful great uh, <laughs> yeah, wonderful. likewise i was gonna say it, it was uh, such an honor uh, uh, speaking with you thank you likewise thank you so much if you want more IT-related content, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at ITOfficial. E-Y-E-T-E-A. IT. -E